sleepy. He knows when you're... Christmas is a wondrous time for those people who celebrate it. Where families and friends get together and exchange presents, watch Christmas movies, play games and gorge themselves silly on enormous roast dinners. It's also a time traditionally of telling one another scary tales. The 1963 Christmas song It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year even features the line There'll be scary ghost stories. But while people such as you are having all this festive fun could there be an unwelcome guest there with you in your very home? On How Haunted, we've looked at castles, churchyards, jails, places that have a bloody history, an eerie atmosphere, and are traditionally seen as locations that have the potential to be haunted. But this time out, we're going to focus on somewhere close at home, literally. Tonight, join me as we look at some horrifying examples of hauntings in everyday family homes. Welcome to the first ever Christmas episode of How Haunted, a weekly paranormal podcast where each episode we explore the horrible history and terrifying ghost stories of one of the most haunted places on planet Earth. I'm Rob Kirkup, author, paranormal historian and ghost hunter from the northeast of England. Allow me to be your guide as we dare to investigate in depth the often dark and troubled history of each location and of course the chilling tales of the ghosts that reside within. This week, we ask just how haunted could your own home be?
This Christmas episode features terrifying stories of real hauntings in real homes, much like yours. Stories of encounters so scary that people were literally frightened to death. Do you want to be looking over your shoulder this Christmas time? Or do you want to sleep soundly awaiting Santa's arrival? Without wondering if that shadow you saw quickly move across your room was your imagination or something else. Only the most fearless of listener should listen on. The 1831 book Cambrian Superstitions by W. Howells states on the subject of ghosts, and I quote, The usual time of their appearance is midnight, seldom before it is dark, and no ghosts can appear on Christmas Eve. Now I don't want to say that this 19th century British author is wrong, but that contradicts pretty much everything else written about ghosts at Christmas time. Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol in 1863 and his tale of Ebenezer Scrooge being visited by ghosts may well be the most famous example of people being visited by ghosts at Christmas. But the tradition of Christmas ghost stories goes much, much farther back and may even predate Christmas itself. Christmas is celebrated in Europe and the US was originally connected to the pagan winter solstice celebrations on the shortest day of the year and the festival known as Yule. The darkest day of the year was seen by many as a time when the dead would return to the land of the living. It was transformed into Christmas, a Christian celebration, and it was during the 19th century that the tradition of telling spooky ghost stories this time of year was born a tradition rooted in the pagan origins of this special time of the year, a time of winter, death and rebirth. Though by its very nature, Halloween might be a more appropriate holiday for ghosts, Christmas does make sense. As Dickens wrote, the ghosts of Christmas are really the past, present and future, swirling around us in the dead of the year. They're a reminder that we're all haunted, all of the time, by good ghosts and bad and that they all have something to tell us. But is there more to the notion that ghosts can more commonly appear at Christmas? Beyond the scary tales that have been told since around the time that Dickens was penning his Christmas carol. Some believe so and point to several reasons why reports of encounters with the dead are higher at this time of year. Firstly, nights are longer during the winter, and since people more commonly claim to have spooky experiences in the darkness, then Christmas, only a few days after the shortest day of the year, is the perfect time for such things. At Christmas time, we recollect relatives and friends who have passed away. Christmas is an emotional time, and many experiences of paranormal nature are linked to states of high emotion, such as becoming a parent and being overjoyed at the birth of your child, or the heart-wrenching pain of losing somebody close to you. Christmas can be one of the most joyful times of the year, which would put you into a heightened state of emotion. But at the same time, there are some people who, for their own reasons or circumstances, are miserable at this time of year. Also, people spend more time at home, giving you more chance of seeing an unwelcome ghostly visitor in the place you should feel safer than anywhere else. Have you ever experienced anything paranormal in your own home? Perhaps something you dismissed? That unusual noise that was the building settling, or the central heat and cooling down. But what if it wasn't? Maybe that thing that you saw out of the corner of your eye wasn't just your imagination. 
Have you ever considered the possibility that your own home could be haunted? In this special episode of How Haunted, let's look at some extreme examples of family homes, much like yours, that have experienced some absolutely terrifying otherworldly visitors, to the point of scaring the family who lived there out of their own home. Fifty Berkeley Square. Fifty Berkeley Square is a four-store townhouse that is reputedly haunted in the centre of Berkeley Square in Mayfair, an area of central London popular with the rich and famous, with house prices currently averaging around four and a half million pounds. It is widely regarded as one of the most haunted houses in all of the world, due to the incredible and horrifying stories that began in the 19th century. Number 50 Berkeley Square was built in 1750 to the designs of famed architect William Kent and from 1770 was the home of George Canning who was Prime Minister for just 119 days in 1827 before dying of tuberculosis. It was then leased by an Elizabeth Curzon who lived in it until her death at the ripe old age of 91 in 1859. Some reports say that it was during her time in around the 1840s that the reported strange happenings began, but it was most certainly in the next occupancy that the building found infamy. Thomas Myers bought the house following the death of Elizabeth Curzon. He was due to be wed and was excited to start a new life with his wife-to-be in their beautiful new home. However, just before the wedding, she left him and it broke both his heart and his mind. He moved into a little room at the very top of the townhouse and that's where he lived day and night for the remainder of his life. He rarely left the house and developed bizarre sleeping habits where he essentially became nocturnal, sleeping all day and coming alive at night. No one is really sure what he did each night but strange sounds and the flickering light of a candle at the windows were reported by his neighbours. In 1873 the local council took him to court for failing to pay his taxes In keeping with his habit of never leaving the house, he didn't turn up for the court hearing. However, rather than being punished further, the judge absolved him due to the house being in such a state of disrepair. In November 1874, Myers died at the age of 76, and 50 Berkeley Square was left to his sister. However, the house had been neglected for the last 15 years, so she never moved in and it was left abandoned for the next decade. During the time that Myers had been living in the house, stories and rumours had spread like wildfire across London that this 18th century townhouse was home to far more than just the reclusive Myers, so the empty building became a magnet for anybody curious enough to find out for themselves. The hub of activity was said to be in the attic room at the top of the building, the room in which Thomas Myers had lived. The story was that this room was haunted due to a young woman committing suicide by jumping from the window to escape an abusive uncle. Witnesses claim that she appears as a brown mist, although sometimes she is a white figure and has scared people, in some cases, literally to death. An alternative version of the attic story is that a young man was imprisoned in the room 
never being allowed out, and instead would be fed through a hole in the door. He went mad, then eventually died, and his tormented spirit remains. There's also a legend of a very young girl who was brought to this room and murdered by a servant of the house. She is seen wearing what has been described as a kilt, but appears more likely to be a checky dress. In 1879, a London-based magazine called Mayfair published an article about the property stating that the house was in a state of decay and five years of lying empty had taken their toll on the already run-down townhouse. The article said, With windows caked and blackened by dust, full of silence and emptiness, and yet with no notice about it anywhere that it may be had for renting, this is known as the Haunted House in Berkeley Square. The article continued with a series of stories, which are increasingly alarming in their nature. These stories, many of which don't seem to have appeared in text prior to this article, have been retold in books, articles, videos and podcasts such as this one ever since. One tale begins with a man moving into the house with his two teenage daughters. Upon entering the building, the eldest daughter immediately complains of a horrible musty smell that reminds her of the animals' enclosures at the zoo. Once the family had settled into their new home, the elder girl's fiancé, a man called Captain Kenfield, was due to visit the house. A maidservant was asked to make up his room in the higher part of the building. She had only been upstairs for a short while, while she let out a series of blood-curdling screams. The family raced upstairs to see what had happened, and found her in a crumpled heap on the floor, muttering to herself over and over, Don't let it touch me. They tried to help her and find out what had happened, but she was completely incoherent. They would never find out, as the very next day she died in hospital, although some versions of this story say she had been placed in an asylum, and it is there which she died. Despite the terrifying events that had befallen the servant, Captain Kenfield was not to be dissuaded, and he chose to spend the night in the room. He headed upstairs by candlelight, and closed the door once he was inside the room. Thirty minutes later, terrible screams were heard coming from the room, followed by a gunshot. They found the captain on the floor. His face was twisted in terror. He was dead. More stories came out over the years, relating to the house. Another story which has an equally fatal outcome is that of two sailors, Robert Martin and Edward Blunden, which stories today attribute to the HMS Penelope. But this is certainly an inaccurate addition, as the HMS Penelope didn't exist at the time. It was launched on the 15th of October 1935. No matter what ship these sailors were from, they dared to spend a night at 50 Berkeley Square. By morning, Blunden was dead. Martin said that they were chased from the house by the ghost of none other than Thomas Myers. The deceased had jumped from a window while trying desperately to escape, and he died in the fall. Another story that is well known today is that of a sceptical man, which later versions of the story say was a 20-year-old called Robert Warboys. Occasionally, Sir Robert Warboys. He was at his local pub when the conversation, as it did in the area at the time, turned to 50 Berkeley Square, and the belief that it was home to something dark and dangerous. 
Warboys laughed off these suggestions, saying there's no such thing as ghosts, and anybody who believes these stories is just stupid. His fellow drinkers dared him to spend a night at the house, which he accepted without hesitation. He finished his drink and headed straight to Berkeley Square. He spoke to the landlord, and despite the landlord's reservations, Warboys paid him some money to stay that very night. The landlord agreed, but on the condition that Warboys make sure he have a gun with him, just in case. He also said he would put a bell in the room, and should Warboys require any help, he should ring the bell immediately. Warboys laughed off these extreme measures, but went along with it, and retired to the room for the night. Less than an hour later, the bell started ringing repeatedly, urgently. The landlord got out of bed, and at that moment the bell stopped. It was followed by a gunshot, then silence. He raced upstairs to see what had happened to Warboys. Knowing what this malevolent force was capable of, he feared the worst. He entered the room, and in the light of his candle he could see the young man slouched in the corner of the room, as if he had been backing away from someone or something, and was able to back away no further. His pistol was still in his hand, and there was a bullet hole in the wall opposite. His eyes were bulging and his mouth was wide open. He looked terrified and he was dead. He had been frightened to death. A very similar story is that of Lord Littleton who was dared to spend a night in the same room and took his shotgun with him. When in the room he was surrounded by a brown mist and he fired his shotgun at it at which point it disappeared Unlike Robert Warboys, however, he survived to tell the tale. 50 Berkeley Square was taken over in the 1930s by Ed Maggs, who turned the house into a bookstore and an antique shop called Maggs Brothers. And with that, the paranormal reportings just stopped. The legend of the house is kept alive by the stories being told in print, time and time and time again. Peter Underwood's book, Haunted London, in 1975, really helped thrust the property back into the forefront of scary locations in England's capital city. This very day, 50 Berkeley Square is talked about as one of the most haunted places in all of London, and paranormal enthusiasts visiting the capital make the fairly unremarkable townhouse one of their stops whilst in the city. But how much truth is there in any of this? There are a lot of red flags with this particular location, as the stories that we've looked at are so wildly different with every retelling, and even the haunted area of the house is different from tale to tale, with many claiming it to be the second floor of the four-storey building, as opposed to the attic. I read a very recent version of the story about the two sailors, Robert Martin and Edward Blunden, while carrying out my research for this episode, and in this version of the story, it was claimed that they actually encountered a giant ghost octopus monster called the nameless thing of Burgley Square, reaching out for the sailors with its massive ghostly tentacles before Blunden leapt to his death from a window to avoid the beast. This particular story about Martin and Blunden first featured in a book by Elliot O'Donnell, who wrote a number of books about the paranormal in the early 20th century. It's widely accepted today that O'Donnell made up the tale as a zero historical evidence to confirm any part of the story. Dates are different in each telling of the stories. 
and a lot of the claim dates simply aren't feasible, as they clash with either Curzon or Maya's ownership of the townhouse. Or in the case of the Robert Warboy story, all of the suggested dates, which differ wildly from telling to telling, came at a time when the building didn't have a landlord renting out rooms for him to be in a position to agree to let Warboy spend the night and then find his lifeless corpse a short while later. Suggestions that these may be nothing more than far-fetched tales date back to only a few years after the first began. Notes and Queries, which, since 1849, is a quarterly scholarly journal that publishes short articles relating to English language and literature and history, with its emphasis being on the factual rather than speculative. Three times they published correspondence relating to the hauntings at 50 Berkeley Square. Firstly in 1872-73, then in 1879, then in 1880-81. They said the neglect of the house had inspired the imaginative stories. Modern researchers agree, throwing the odd nighttime behaviour of Thomas Myers into the mix as a catalyst for the spooky tales. That said, just because some of these stories may not necessarily be more than exactly that, stories... That isn't to say that the building unquestionably isn't haunted. As they say, there's no smoke without fire. But with it being inaccessible to anyone other than the current occupants, we're unlikely to find out anytime soon. Forbidden history, grisly ghosts, monstrous cryptids, and harrowing folklore dominate Japan's history and culture. Mysterious Japan is a bi-weekly podcast presenting these spine-chilling horror stories, urban legends, and unbelievable histories in a campfire story format. Many of these tales have never been presented in English before. Our journey takes place where dark history and supernatural folklore collide. Mysterious Japan is produced, written, and translated by recognized Japan expert Dr. Heath Avey. Season 1 relates the unbelievable legends and ghost stories from the so-called suicide forest. Listen to Mysterious Japan for free on Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at our website at themysteriousjapan.com and be transported by unbelievable stories where the lines between reality and folklore become blurred in the shadowlands of Japan. Once again, that's themysteriousjapan.com. Three Reed Avenue, Hexham. The story of the Hexham Heads. 
In February of 1972, although some accounts claim 1971, 11-year-old Colin Robson was weeding a corner in the back garden of the house at 3 Reed Avenue in the market town of Hexham that his family had moved into only two weeks earlier. He struck something hard in the soil. As he moved the earth, he found what appeared to be a tennis ball-sized rock. He took it from the ground and rubbed away the dirt, and was surprised to see that the rock had a face. He was holding a stone head. He shouted to his eight-year-old brother Leslie, who'd been watching from an upstairs window, and Leslie raced down to help. Shortly afterwards, he too had found a second stone head in the soil. One head appeared to be male, with short hair carved into the head, and they called it the boy. The other was female, with bulging eyes, a large hooked nose, and even described by some who saw it as resembling a witch. This one they referred to as the girl. Both were carved from grey stone, with a greenish tinge, with flecks of quartz crystal. They had protrusions sticking out the bottom of the head at an angle, which it has been suggested could have been necks, and at one point maybe they had bodies, or an alternative take is that these could have attached them to pedestals. The boys showed their heads to the parents and to their neighbours, and then kept them inside the Robson home. However, shortly afterwards, bizarre events plagued their house. These occurrences were daily, and the most terrifying occurred between 2am and 3am. The heads would always be found to have been turned around. Shards of broken glass was found in the bed of their two sisters, who moved out following this occurrence. On another occasion, a mirror was found to be broken, with missing pieces of the glass found in a frying pan. These supernatural events weren't even confined to the Robson home. Their neighbours, the Dodds, had an even scarier experience. Ellen Dodd told a local newspaper at the time, I had gone into the children's bedroom to sleep with one of them. He was feeling unwell, and my ten-year-old son Brian kept telling me that he felt something touching him. I told him not to be silly. Then I saw this shape. It came towards me, and I definitely felt it touch me on the legs. Then on all fours, it moved out of the room. I was absolutely terrified, and screamed for my husband. She described the creature she had encountered as half-human, half-sheep-like, and after leaving the room, it had padded downstairs, leaving the front door open. Her local council housing officers took the report so seriously that they rehomed the family. The house where the heads were situated was no better, and it was too much for the Robsons. Before things could escalate any further, they got the stone heads out of the house and had an exorcism performed at 3 Reed Avenue by the local church. The heads were handed to Hexham Abbey nearby, so they could be studied to see what they were and why they appeared to be linked to supernatural occurrences. The heads were studied extensively and found their way into the hands of Dr Anne Ross of Southampton University, who was a scholar and archaeologist with an expert in Celtic artefacts. She believed the heads were around 1800 years old, but wanted to conduct further research including excavating the garden at Three Reed Avenue, with their belief it could be a possible Celtic burial ground. However, before she could carry out any of her plans for further research, she too experienced the horrifying power of the Hexham Heads. She described the chilling encounter, 
which occurred a couple of days after taking the heads into her home, in a television interview she gave to the nationwide BBC TV series. She said, I woke up in the middle of the night. We always keep the hall light on and the doors open because our small son is a bit frightened of the dark. So there's always a certain amount of light coming into our room. And I woke up and I felt extremely frightened. In fact, panic-stricken and terribly, terribly cold. There was a sort of dreadful atmosphere of icy coldness all around me and something made me look towards the door. And as I looked, I saw this thing going out of it. It was about six feet high, slightly stooping, and it was black against the white door, and it was half animal and half human. The upper part I would say was a wolf, and the lower part was human. And I would again said it was covered with some kind of black, very dark fur. It went out, and I just saw it clearly, and then it disappeared. Something compelled me to run after it. I got out of bed and I ran. And I could hear it going down the stairs, and then it disappeared towards the back of the house. When I reached the bottom of the stairs, I was terrified. She continued. A few days after I saw it, we had to go up to London and our 15-year-old daughter had the key, and came home from school about 4pm. And when we got back from London about 6pm, we opened the door. She came to meet us and she looked extremely pale and terribly shaken. Finally I got it out of her, what had happened. When she got home from school she'd opened the front door. And when she opened it, a black thing, which he described as near a werewolf as anything, jumped over the banister and landed with a kind of plop, you know like heavy animal feet, and it rushed towards the back of the house, and she felt compelled to follow it. It disappeared in the music room right at the end of the corridor, and when she got there it had gone, and suddenly she realised she was terrified. The day the heads were removed from our house, everybody, including my husband, said it was as if a cloud had lifted, and since then there hasn't been a trace of it. The story took an unexpected twist, when after seeing the story in the press, a man called Desmond Craigie came forward and claimed that the heads weren't 1800 years old. They weren't even 180 years old. In fact, they were 18 years old. And what's more, he'd made them. He explained that he had previously lived at Three Reed Avenue. And in 1956, he made the heads to show his daughter what he does for a living. He went on to tell the Evening Chronicle newspaper, I made the heads from bits of stone and mortar, simply to amuse my daughter when she was a little girl. I actually made three, but one of them appears to have got lost. They were in the garden for years. I definitely made them. I have been laughing my head off about these heads, and I cannot understand why all this attention is being paid to them. He made some replicas to attempt to prove his claim, but when these were analysed by Professor Damon of the University of Newcastle, he concluded that the Craigie heads had been moulded artificially, rather than carved, as he had claimed. As for the original Hexham heads, media interest soon cooled, and long before the 1970s were over, they'd simply disappeared with their whereabouts today completely lost to time. But they're out there somewhere.
81 Skegness Road, known as the Skegness Hell House. Number 81 Skegness Road is a three-bedroom semi-detached house in the seaside town of Skegness, Lincolnshire. It has become known in recent years the world over as the Skegness Hell House. The first documented paranormal occurrences in this very ordinary looking house occurred when the Antor family moved in in 1973. Six-year-old Jail, her brother Abraham and her parents Ottoman and Sylvia. It was Jail that the ghost of this 1930s house appeared to be drawn to. Even at the tender age of six, she knew on the very first night she spent in the new family home that this building was haunted. She heard knocking on the front door and when she answered it there was nobody there. Then shortly afterwards, a young girl of a similar age to her appeared at jail and told her that her name was Lucy. She would play games with the little girl, who her parents assumed was just her imaginary friend, but she was very real at jail. She told a newspaper local to the area in October 2018. When I first moved there as a child, I used to play with one little girl who told me that her name was Lucy. It was then I discovered I could talk to dead people, when I realised that I was grown up, but Lucy stayed the same age. Before long the whole family started having paranormal experiences of their own. Jail and her mother repeatedly encountered the same sinister, dark figure, which they called the Dark Man. He was accompanied by a feeling of dread. Meanwhile Jail's father and brother were deeply affected by the nightly occurrences in their home. The one place you would wish to be safe from things of this nature. They became reclusive and have refused to speak a word about it in the near 50 years since. The family believe that Lucy may have been the spirit of a little girl who died at the property in an accident. An unsubstantiated claim for the house's haunting is that it was once a foster home run by a very evil man who made the children who came into his care stay in the attic where he would abuse them. This included little Lucy. This would explain why many of the phantoms believed to haunt the house are children. Other theories that again don't appear to hold any historical weight are that somebody committed suicide within the house and this is part of the reason for the intense activity. Another is that the house was built on land which was once the site of a Roman building. In much more recent years the house was empty for a period of time, when it was up for sale, before eventually being sold in March 2019 for £90,000. This period of emptiness was taken advantage of by ghost hunting groups, and it was these groups who first called it the Hell House. This was due to the activity that they experienced. The house gained great notoriety, which was blamed on a very angry, very dark spirit. The level of reported ghostly activity was incredible, with all manner of paranormal happenings that could be described as poltergeist activity. There were witnesses claiming to see objects being thrown across rooms, or even moved right in front of their eyes. Faces are seen looking through windows, peering around corners, and even faces seen in the walls looking right at you before disappearing. There were horrendous smells appearing suddenly, then disappearing just as quickly, and there was the constant feeling of being watched. 
Sounds of footsteps on the floor above, heard by those downstairs where nobody's actually upstairs, were common. Voices, whispering, crying and screaming were all commonplace. One of the bedrooms which became well known within the abandoned home had books relating to witchcraft and other items tied to black magic. These appeared to have been left by the previous owner before they abandoned the house and put it up for sale. On this floor of the house there is a cupboard and the door of this cupboard has opened on several occasions across many of the investigations in the very presence of ghost hunters who all witnessed it as it happened and then saw something inside moving around within the darkness. The attic is the room which the ghost hunters would typically find the most oppressive and they would say it was very frightening. This is where the most dominant spirit of the many spirits believed to remain within the hell house was said to mostly lurk. He makes his presence felt and hardened investigators would be desperate to get out of the attic for no apparent reason. This unknown entity was not restricted to the attic however and was experienced throughout the entire house. Some investigators were looking into mirrors believing themselves to be all alone only to see him stood there behind him staring right at them through the mirror. When they were brave enough to turn around, they'd say there was nobody there. This male spirit definitely does not want other people in his house. In 2018, the infamy of the Skegness Hell House went through the roof when it made it onto TV in a show called Paranormal Lockdown UK, which is shown on the channel Quest Red. American presenters and paranormal investigators Nick Groff and Katrina Weedman spent 72 hours locked inside the Hell House which Groff later described as being intense and really tough. Before the house was sold in 2019, paranormal group Lincolnshire Spirit Seekers claimed to have made contact with a number of the children who remained within the building and helped them to move into the light, believing that they no longer haunt 81 Skegness Road. The other, darker spirits however, do still remain which makes me wonder how well the newest owner, who bought the house in March 2022 for £195,000, sleeps at night.
Thank you so much for joining me for this nightmare before Christmas. You can follow How Haunted on Twitter at at HowHauntedPod or over on Instagram at HowHauntedPod where you will see photos galore relating to the locations covered in this special festive episode. If you want to get in touch, you can do so by visiting the website at www.how-haunted.com or you can email me directly at rob at how-haunted.com Feedback, location, suggestions and your own experiences are all more than welcome. Feel free to ask me any questions you like and I'll answer them all on a dedicated Q&A episode. If you'd like to support the show and get early access to episodes, you can join the Patreon for less than the price of a pint. You'll also get exclusive episodes where you'll join me on an actual paranormal investigation and hear the audio as it happened. There are four episodes waiting for you right now. If you want to find a Patreon, or perhaps would prefer to make a one-off donation to the podcast, maybe as a Christmas present to me, why not donate £2 and buy me a coffee? All the information on how you can support How Haunted is in the podcast description and over on the website. If you've enjoyed this episode, if enjoy is the right word, then please review and subscribe the podcast on your podcast provider of choice. It really does help people to find How Haunted. I have a copy of my book Ghost of York up for grabs. If you'd like to enter, it's incredibly easy to do. All you need to do is follow me on Twitter and or Instagram. My username for both is HowHauntedPod. You'll get one entry for each, so you can enter twice by following on both. The competition will end tomorrow, on the 24th of December, 2022. And the winner will be announced on Twitter in the first podcast episode after the closing date. There won't be an episode next Friday, the 30th, as I take a short break over the festive period. But I'll be back on Friday the 6th with a brand new episode for a brand new year. And I have some frighteningly exciting plans for How Haunted in 2023. Thank you so much for accompanying me for our paranormal adventures once again. Have a wonderful Christmas and a brilliant new year. And I truly hope that you don't receive any unwanted presences. Stay safe. And join me next year when we will once again ask the question How haunted?
Thank you.